Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And I'm there and nothing's happening. I'm thinking, fuck, man, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. This is shit. And after about half an hour, suddenly, do you know, what? I have to be so careful about talking about this because I'm, I'm, I'm getting a buzz if, talking about it. So let me bring it down a little bit because my head's going a little bit wobbly. Basically, I, got, I suddenly got very, very high. And a voice in my head said, welcome home. Welcome home, son. What have you been doing? And for 20 minutes, it was fucking incredible. I can't give enough gratitude to Ian Lee. He gives an honest and beautiful conversation in this. We speak about his career, we speak about his addiction and mental health. So let's get into this. This is Ian Lee on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Ian Lees, he's a TV presenter, radio presenter, I'm a celebrity finalist and came third, and just a genuinely nice guy, I can't thank him enough for this conversation, and I know I say this every time, you're going to be bored of hearing it, but I genuinely think this might be one of my favourite conversations. So if you want to follow our work, please go to at UKLeak.org, our Facebook, UKLeak.org, our website, at UKLeak on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much, and I'm not going to hang about. Let's get straight into this. This is Ian Lee. That looks like it's going. So I, I genuinely can't believe that I'm with Ian Lee, because I've just said to you before you walked in, or just as you was walking in, is that I, I do feel like I've grown up with you from the age of 18 upwards. Not so nuts. You've been with me in my 20 way. years ago, 21 years ago, uh, I get, I had what I guess you would call my break. The big break was doing, um, not big break, but doing the 11 o'clock show with, uh, who was on there? Daisy Donovan, Ricky Gervais, Sasha, Mackenzie Crook, uh, people like Charlie Brooker and Jimmy Carr and Robin Ince were writing on it. You know, loads of people. It was just such a good show. I genuinely don't think there's anything like it now. You've got, you've got satirical programmes, but you were brilliantly sarcastic and that doesn't mean to sound a back there was sarcasm it mixed with uh with just plain cruelty to be honest it was that late 90s early 2000s thing you know the kind of fhm tits out for the lads let's bully there's a lot of punching down as i said of punching up but you know i'm proud of it i wouldn't watch it now because i you know a lot of it i'm sure wouldn't stand up and uh you know we did some terrible things on there but I, you know, I was a 24-year-old kid and I was skint and I was living at my mum's and 
suddenly I got given, you know, I got given a TV show to go and work with some of the funniest people in the world. And then the other thing that I don't think I've ever publicly admitted, but I'm not a particular big reality TV fan. Yeah, me neither. But I hate it. you've done one that I do actually watch, <laughs> and it is relevant to the discussion we're going to have about mental health and things yeah. like that. So I might as well kick off with it. But do you've it. done you've done I'm a celebrity. I did I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here to give it its full title in 2017. Not only did I do it, young man, I came third, which is amazing. I came. Yeah. <laughs> It was nuts. Um, they'd asked me to do it loads of times, like maybe four times. And I'd always said no, because um, my wife at the time didn't really want me to do it. And I can understand why. And also, I always thought it was a bit of a, you, you do it and you're saying, yeah, my career's over and I'm, you know, I can't get any work. And I was working. I was doing a lot of radio, but they kept asking me and I kept saying, I kept considering it and saying no. And thinking, well, that's that's quite a handy little check to have in the back pocket. And then in 2017, um, I split up with my wife and I moved out. And I started doing the maths and realised I was never going to be able to afford to buy anywhere again. Um, so I said to my agent, can you phone up? You know, I know this sounds desperate, but can you phone up ITV and see? This was in October, I think. September, October, October. And see if they'd like me to do I'm a Celebrity this year because I think I might be up for doing it. And he did. He phoned them up. I had a meeting with them the next week. And then a couple of weeks later, I got the call saying they'd love you to do it. So I did it. I did it because I needed the money. You know, it pays quite well. I did it because I'm on a radio station, talk radio, and they just didn't advertise. And I thought, well, this is a chance to, at some point in front of 12 million people, say, hey, I do a radio show. And the third reason was because my boys, who were six and eight at the time, had never really... Six and eight? Yeah. Had never really seen me on TV, apart from on Pointless and, you know, a couple of things like that. And I thought, well, they are old enough now to see me on a big primetime entertainment show being covered in spiders and fish guts and stuff, and they'll find it funny, you know, they'll, they'll enjoy it. So those were the three reasons, and I did it. And it was the weirdest the weirdest experience of my life man i'm gonna come up with the most pointless stupid question ever but go on is it as hard as it looks because it to me it just looks like hell bits of it are harder bits of it are harder are bits of it easier no bits of it are harder i tell you the hardest thing is it's so boring you're in there and they warn you about it when i i got to it because i was going in it was me and um Kezia Dugdale, Labour MP in Scotland, were going in as the second set of contestants. So we were going to go in five days later. So I got to Australia on a Monday and I wasn't going in until the Thursday of the next week. So nearly two weeks, week and a half, I'm in Australia. And as soon as I landed, they took my phone off me. They took my laptop off me. They checked me into a hotel that I was in quarantine in. I wasn't allowed to leave the hotel. Um, And they got rid of the internet and the phone in the hotel room. I was in lockdown so that I wouldn't know who else was going in. And my plan was, go in last. I'm, I, I, I did a lot of stuff for Big Brother, and I know how these things work. The people that go in last, you know, a few days in, always get booted out first because the audience doesn't bond with them. So my plan was, I'm going to go in last, get booted out first or second, it would either be me or the other person, and then have a nice holiday, and you get paid the same. Um... And it didn't work like that. Some reason, the public took a shine to me, and I stayed in until the very last day. But your question was, is it as hard as it looks? Um, it's harder. It's harder because 
it is boring. You can have two or three days of doing nothing, you know, so you'd be hoping you'd get a challenge. Um, some of the people I was in there with were assholes, and I didn't like them. So it was very lonely for a lot of it. And the people that I did like found it easier to talk to me in those few moments we had when we weren't on camera. We had a few moments when we would be, we knew we weren't being filmed and then they would kind of offer support, but they didn't want to do it in front of the cameras, which I totally get. Um, and it is that thing of, uh, you go a bit nuts, you know, that thing, you, you know, you're in there and you get letters from home and you see these people that have been in jungle for eight days and they get letters from home and they're in tears. And I got sucked into that. Everything gets gets amplified and magnified and they mess with your mind in there. You don't know what time it is. You're not allowed watches. One of the games that we would have is when we went off site to do a trial is trying to look at people's watches and everyone's watches were covered with tape, but you would try and come up with cheats. This is how messed up it was, right? So... No one ever came into the camp, apart from a few times, to set up props. But when you went off to do a trial, it was quite a long journey to, to the area where the trial was, and you would walk with a film crew who weren't allowed to talk to you. So you'd walk for about 20, 25 minutes. Then you'd get into the back of a blacked-out Jeep and drive for like 15 minutes. Then you'd come out of the Jeep, and you'd have to have towels over your head, like your hostages. Towels over your head, look at the floor, and have your hand on someone in front of you so you couldn't see where you were. Then you'd get put in a tent, and they'd say, right, you can take your towels off now. So it was all mind games, man. It was all mind games. And you, and you were open about your mental health in there. And, and as you said, everything yeah. is going to be amplified. Absolutely. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. You know, you're in a complete microcosm or something. Yeah. Um, but you were open on camera about the mental health difficulties you had in your, in your life but also within the jungle as well I was open about some of them I didn't mention the drugs didn't mention drugs on camera I mentioned it to people off camera I didn't mention it on camera we didn't get much time off camera we had little little bits but not a lot um, so I didn't mention that because some members of my family you know even though at that point I was 13 years clean some members of my family still didn't know and I thought this is not a fair way for them to find out but the mental health stuff yeah, you know, I, I don't remember what I talked about and I, I've not watched it back. So I don't know exactly what they showed. I mean, I think the thing that a lot of people identified with was on my first trial. This was like my second, my second trial, first trial proper, second day in. It was a swimming one and you get a form and it says, can you swim? And I wrote, yeah, because I can swim. But. I can't swim that well, and I certainly can't swim underwater. My first trial was I had to go three metres underwater and swim through these tunnels, and, oh, God, it was awful, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And it was such... There was such a build-up of, you know, the, 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 the weeks leading up to it where you get measured for your costumes, then the flight out there, and then the, the 10... No, the 12 days I had in a hotel room, and then you go in, and it's this adrenaline rush, and, oh, I'm in the jungle, and then your first trial, yeah, okay, I'm going to do it. And I didn't. I couldn't, I couldn't get one star. I failed it miserably. And I just kind of came crashing down, and I came back to the camp, and they, everyone had this really annoying thing which I knew was going to backfire. Well, you come, they come back to the camp after a trial and go, oh, I, I, did, I, I failed it. And everyone go, oh, no. Mm. Only kidding, I've got eight stars. And I saw that, I thought, that is going to bite someone on the arse at some point. Yeah. And it was me. I came back and I said, failed it. 
come on, Ian, what did you get? I said, no, I failed it. Come on, man. And I burst into tears. And I think that's the thing that everyone bought into. People mentioned it certainly to me afterwards. And, and I saw it on like a, my, my best bits. It was me there, stood there crying. And it was a combination of um, come crashing down from the adrenaline, the humiliation of, you know, not being able to do that trial, knowing that it was going to be seen by millions of people, and the humiliation of coming back empty-handed and knowing everyone was going to go hungry that night. And I just burst into tears. Also, I like, you know, cried quite a bit. And um, uh, I think some so I think some people at home respected that. Some didn't, you know, some called me a twat and all of that. And I know some of the people in the camp saw it as a sign of weakness, but I'm quite comfortable with... I love a good cry, man. Uh, yeah, in this day and age, we, we certainly don't think of it in terms of weakness, do we? But are you aware we've... We some... don't think of it, but some people do. Some, quite a lot of people do. I mean, I still still got flack the other day on Facebook about something and someone went, oh, you're the pussy that cried on I'm a Celebrity, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm the guy that showed a different side to masculinity. Um, but, you know, some people still see it as being a bit puffy, a bit gay, you know, it's... I, 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 you know, perhaps again, it's the circles that I, I, you know, we're in uh, at the moment. We're in releases offices, which is a outreach because of uh, people that have got mental health and drug yeah. addiction. And I've just, for the last ten years, I've assumed that everybody's having this conversation. That no. actually, emotions fine. Yeah, we no, need that. they're not. There are still a lot of old-fashioned men and a lot of old-fashioned women. You, you, there are a lot of old-fashioned people who who think that you should suck it up. But here's the thing: I don't give a stuff about those people. What? what when I came out of the jungle and I got given my phone back and I had something like 1,500 wow. Twitter messages and uh, emails. I had a public email address then. I don't. I had a few hundred emails. and I, I, I read as much as I could. I didn't reply to all of them. But so many, the majority of them were congratulating me. And I talked in there about social anxiety, about how I don't like groups. I get uncomfortable in groups and, and, and conversation. I'm struggling to make eye contact with you because I don't really like it. Um, and I had so many people. I, I mean, the one that sticks in my mind is a mum wrote to me and said, Ian, I was watching you with my 14-year-old son and he started crying when he saw you and he turned to me and he said, Mum, that's me. And she said, I just want to say thank you. And that is one specific email. And I had a lot that were very similar in tone. I also had emails from wives who... I had a few. I mean, this shows you what the problem is. A couple from wives whose husbands had killed themselves. A couple from parents whose sons primarily had killed themselves um, because they suffered from depression and anxiety and, and fear of, you know, being themselves. And, um, and you know, they sent these very emotional emails saying, I wish, you know, my son had been able to talk like you, you know. So there was a lot of that. What is that like? Because you, because where you're a public figure on the radio and you deal with a lot of problems yeah. on, on, on talk radio, and you do, you get a lot of people coming your way both on calls but also outreach on social media and, and emails. And you, you are inundated with a lot of people's problems. Mm. And what is that like? It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And for quite a while, I tried to fix everybody that came to me. And I would reply to everybody that came to me. And um, I perhaps got too personally involved. And it was making me sick. You know, literally making me sick. 
Uh, so I had to make a conscious decision to to kind of take a step back to not feel bad if I don't reply to emails. I don't have a public email address anymore because of that and because of a couple of other things. But I had to take a step back, really, and to protect myself. Uh, it's slightly different on the show because if someone phones up, I'm also wary about having conversations in private with people in case something is misconstrued. On the radio, I've got, I've got Catherine, my co-host there, and we have an audience of listeners, and I'm very happy to share my experience with drugs. If we get a lot of people who have got addiction problems phoning in, I'm happy to share my um, uh, story about, you know, I've called the Samaritans before now when I've been feeling suicidal. I'm happy to share that in kind of a public forum, but I tend, you know, if someone writes, gets in touch with me and says, I'm going to kill myself now, um, I kind of guess, I can't just i give them the samaritans number and say call that call these people now and see how you feel in half an hour and it might sound a bit cold but i found we had a guy right before christmas on the radio show a guy called chris who phoned up and he'd taken an overdose and he was dying and first, listen to the call. The first couple of minutes, we're taking the mickey out of him because he just sounded a little bit drunk. Not taking, we're having a laugh with him because he sounded a little bit drunk and he was on speakerphone and I hate speakerphone. But as soon as we, me and Catherine clicked that he was actually, he was serious and he was in a really bad way, we kind of went into panic mode and Catherine left the studio and phone 999 and I'm, trying to find out what this guy's taken, how much this guy's taken and where he is. And he didn't know where he was. He was out in the street in Plymouth. And I'm going, right, what can you see? What can you do? And we worked out. And then people listening phoned up and said, right, it sounds like he's here. And we kind of worked out where he was. And he was, um, he was dying, man. He's, you know, he was slurring and it was getting his voice. And I had to just talk to him for half an hour. And there were 10 minutes when he stopped talking. I thought, shit, you're dead. And then he came back, and, and then after half an hour, the ambulance was the police. The police picked up the phone and said, thanks very much, sir, we've got him now, we'll take control of this. And I burst into tears. I burst into tears, man, and we kept it on air because I didn't want to waste a second of me going, I'm just going to go and take this off air. Cause that's, that's 15 seconds. Could have gone. Um, and I tried to fix him after that. I found out the... I had his number, so I texted him. He did go to intensive care. He was intensive care for a few days. He died. They brought him back to life. Um, and then Christmas Day it was, or Boxing Day, Boxing Day, because I had the kids. He phoned me up, this guy, and um, I'm there trying to fix him on Christmas uh, Boxing Day, and I've only just got my kids. And I'm trying to fix him. I'm trying to fix him. I'm trying to find a hotel for him to stay in. Da -da 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 -da. And I'm uh, phoning up AA to help him. And and then after about 40 minutes, I realised he didn't want, he didn't actually want my help. I'm giving him all these options. I'm telling, I was telling him what he should do. And he didn't want to know. He wanted to moan at me about his situation, which was a shitty situation. And it suddenly dawned on me what I've been told before in recovery. You can't, you can't fix him. If he didn't want it, he didn't want it. And um, I said, all right, listen, I'm going to have to go. Here's the number for AA. Here's the number for the Samaritans. Um, I'm going to go because I'm going to be with my kids now. And we had a little bit more contact. 
and it got it got a little bit tense, shall we say, a couple of times. Um, and I was able to let it go because I'd done my bit. I'd done my bit. Um, and the pe- papers wanted me to go do interviews, and I turned down interviews with, with you know that wanted. I, I did a few interviews, but not any that wanted to exploit him. Good Morning Britain wanted me to go on with him, and I said, "I'm not going to ask a guy who's just tried to kill himself to come on tell a live TV show." You nuts! Um, but that was the point where I really realised I can't fix everyone. I can't fix everyone. I can give people the tool. I, I can help show people the tools. I'm rambling a bit. I can show people the tools, but I can't fix them if they don't want it. And I don't think... I don't want to speak for him. I don't know what he wanted, but I've just had to take a step back is the really long answer to whatever that question was. I've forgotten. Sorry. Perfectly eloquent. I think that's that's genuinely such an intriguing answer because part of me wonders, the people come to you because you are out there a public figure Mm. and have got experience within these fields and have been vocal about yeah. it. Is that why people come to Yeah, you? they do. Uh, and um, they do. And I kind of, if I'm completely honest, my ego bought into it a little bit as well. Uh, my ego, you know, this, this saving this guy, help talking to this guy on the phone, there I go again, saving this guy's life. I didn't, the, the police did. Talking to this guy on the phone got onto the front page of, of the start, front page the star it was in all the papers and i bought i allowed myself to my ego to buy into that that i'm a great man i saved a guy's life i saved a guy's life i can do great things um and i do think that radio can do great things and we've helped a lot of people on the radio show um but i think some of it was my ego wanting to feel flattered but yeah we do get people calling in that want help and i've again i've had to make a conscious step back because I think the show was suffering. You know, the show is a light-hearted, funny, stupid, dumb, silly show. Um, tonight we're going to be getting people to phone in and sing the lyrics that they sing when there are TV theme tunes playing. Um, but but suddenly the whole show was becoming a little bit like a, a Samaritans, which was not great for the, a lot of the listeners. I don't think it was helpful to the people that were calling in, and it was it was damaging to me damaging my mental health actually I was feeling a weight of responsibility that actually wasn't my responsibility so we kind of Catherine and I made a decision to let it go a bit people can still phone up with with their issues um and we'll talk about them because I think it's important and I'll talk about my stuff but we've taken a little step a couple of steps back and this is how roundabout how you you're here with me now because how did, how did it work? So originally... Because you, you've you been flirting with me for a while about yeah. me coming on. And I said, yeah, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it now, whenever you first asked. And and, and I'm, now I'm also shit at getting back at emails. And we've been planning this for ages and ages, and it's finally happened. But I don't remember when you first made so contact. I think and I thought you'd through... be older as well. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I don't know if that's a good thing or bad. Oh, it's a good, it's a good thing. You're a young man. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going grey, and and yeah. Shut up! You look at that beautiful hair. Always oh, receding. I, I bumped the head this, this week on. Um, I was out with a walk with dad, and I've got a kind of a minor concussion because it was this big branch. Wow. But, yeah, I digress. Oh, I can it? see a little, little yeah. thing under there. Stupid bloody! I'm at the age where I'm walking into things. That's that's how old I am. <laughs> it's all downhill from there. But I, how did it work? So you've done stews off the beaten track. You know Scooby's Pip. Yep. Well, um, very, very loosely, yes. I've been privileged to meet him a couple of times, yeah. And then when Rufus Hound cover for you one evening, 
uh, it come up about drugs. Yeah. And then one of our guys from uh, Leap, uh, I think it was Andy Michon, went on with him. Right. Then, uh, how did it work? Then I came on your show on the phone one evening um, as I was doing my toenails, bizarrely enough. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why that's Always good to do toenails. Overlooked. Bizarrely, I did them last night. So there must be something about you. Toenail collection, I like it. Yes, you can have that on your Twitter bio. There we go, yeah. Um, And then from there, you said, yeah, I'll I'll do the podcast. And then I think you know Secret Drug Addict as well. Yeah, yeah, Um, and then then, Yeah, so that's kind of how I... The weird merging yeah. of how this happened. Um, so, so you can I ask you a question? Yeah, go for you it. are you one of us? Are you in the club? Are you a junkie? Not quite. I I have got a weird um, story. Yeah, um, which is kind of out there, but I, I try not to really sort of okay. kind of talk about it. But uh, well, might as well. well don't, but, if you don't want, well, you don't have to say anything. No, no that's fine. It's just it's just like yeah, I'm kind of like you, where it's like look, I don't like talking about myself. It's yeah, because I, I get that impression with you. It's like. You know, you're a public figure and you're always out there and you haven't to speak about yourself, but you're very self-deprecating when you do it. There's, and also, there's a lot of stuff I don't... I'm very open about, you know, my sexuality and my drugs and my depression, but no one knows the names of my kids, you know. I talk yeah. about my kids, but I don't... No one knows the names of them. Never speak about details about my marriage. You know, it's I, there are stuff that is very, very private. Um, but, yeah. So, so my way into this is that um, I've been housebound disabled since the age of eight. Okay. Um, I've had a, an illness which creates constant pain. Um, so I was prescribed codeine from the age of eight. Wow, which, okay. Right. Which I, I had a terrible doctor. Absolutely yeah. appalling. Um, so when you're, when you're on a high dose of codeine from that age, you know, where do you go from there? <laughs> so uh, I got to 25 and I realised I need to do something about this. I can't, you know, my organs aren't going to take yeah. it. Um, so someone said, "If you try cannabis, um, I said, no, all drugs are bad. You know, I, I don't, I'm from that generation who just say no. Plus, my prescription drug legacy is weird. Like, mm. I've had eye drops that have turned me blind. And, wow. Yeah, so I don't react well. Uh, and then I tried cannabis, and it had a, a really good effect on me. Yeah. And it's, that's why I'm here now, because without that, I know I'm going to be in a, an immense amount of pain when I get back. Yeah. Uh, and I need to get myself out of that. So I've got this kind of regime of, of relaxation periods. Okay. Um, so that's how I'm here. So I've, I've got what I like to think is an understanding of addiction yeah. because of what, how the very, very complex relationship I've got with codeine, because it's, you know, it is a, an addictive drug. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Um, and... I've certainly experienced times where I wouldn't say addiction, but I, I can certainly see problematic behaviours of, oh, just take two more, just take two more. Yeah. And then the tolerance builds up. And then where do you go from yeah. there? So cannabis gave me a way of getting out of that and making sure that I can cap my code. I'm still on it, but it's very low levels now. So that's why I, I think I've got an empathy with people that have gone through addiction because mm. I can understand it's, it's not about the drug. It's about everything that's going on in your life at that time. The drugs, the thing. I should apologise. Some people might be upset at me saying junkie. I'm, I, cause I know some people... But you, you can own it. I, I can own it. I am. I was. I am. I always will be. But I know I, I, there might be some people going, what are you talking about junkie? But, so, you know, some people might be upset by that. So I take that back to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, no. for me, being an addict is not, you know, it's not about the drugs, you know. Uh, for me, it was it was drugs. It was sex. It, I've had an argument with someone today, so I've uh, so I'm trying to lose weight. But I just stopped off at a service station and bought a massive coffee and a huge bar of chocolate. In the great scheme of things, it's not a lot, but I didn't want either of those things, and they made me feel bad afterwards. It's the same thing: food, sex, buying stuff on eBay. I had a great chat on my radio show. Uh, um, we said this on air, so I can say it with. Um, 
uh, Chris Difford from Squeeze, who is, you know, famous. He's read his autobiography, guys. He talks about addiction and drug addiction and stuff. And, and we were having a really honest chat. And I said, I've got so much crap that I've bought from Amazon and eBay still in their boxes in the boot of my car. And he went, I used to do that. He said, he said, I would buy this stuff to make me feel better. It would arrive. I couldn't show the wife that I bought all this stuff. So I just put it in the boot of the car and it would be full with these boxes of things I didn't want. But the buying of them was an obsession and it made me feel better. And then when they arrived, I felt shit again. So for me, the addiction can be anything. And it, 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 it was trying to mask. What was it trying to mask? It's trying to mask... Um, loneliness, self-loathing, you know, what happened to me as a, stuff that happened to me as a kid, confusion about my sexuality. It was trying to mask all of that and, 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 and it was trying to push all that down. And when I take drugs and when I have, you know, sex outside of a relationship, you know, or stuff my face full of food, there is a moment when I'm taken out of myself and I don't give a shit that I hate myself. But of course, the cycle then is, second later or half an hour later or a day later I feel shit and I hate myself again so I've got to go and do the same thing but a little bit more I've got to watch more extreme porn I've got to buy something more expensive from from eBay you know um so the drugs weren't the I mean and also let's be honest I had a for a while I had an amazing time on drugs I had an amazing time on drugs. For a while, the drugs worked, you know. The, the drugs made me confident. They made me sexy. They made me funny. They made things funny. They gave me energy. They um, allowed me to, you know, to, to, to have sex confidently. They, you know, LSD. I've never laughed so much. But um, that was like, you know, a tiny part of my drug use you know there was a small part of my drug use and then the rest of it I'm doing a small sign here and then a big sign the rest of it was miserable you know and was degrading and humiliating and put my life at risk and lost me friends and relationships and work and money and made me suicidal and nearly killed me you know so but I have to acknowledge that for, for a bit of it the drugs are wicked you know that's the I'm, truth. I'm very conscious about the gift that I bought you now as well. Drugs. Sit, sit, food. <laughs> food. Sitting food. next to me and I, there is I, two packets of what we call Polish wafer chews, which are these wafers filled with a cream and they are, the, all the distraction pieces network guys are on them now. Yeah. And they are so stupidly addictive. I always find it funny when you go to NA meetings and, um, you know, there's there's a tea person there who makes tea and coffee and brings biscuits. And some of them, you'll go into the meetings and there'll be like a plate of donuts and a plate of Kit Kats and a ba- and you think, fucking hell, man. You, you know, a lot of the people in this room have got issues with food as well. You know, it's it's uh, it seems a strange thing. But then that person's issue is helping. You know, it's a, it, it's a confusing network. I'd never judge and I, I, anybody. The but. food issue is always something that really intrigues me because I've got someone close in my life that's got food addiction. Yeah. And it is, I would say that food addiction is probably up there, one of the hardest things to deal with because you can't have, be abstinent from no. it. And, and I it's said, everywhere. Yeah. And, and we had Marcus Brigstock as well on who had this discussion as well that he, he knew that his low points were when, it, when he was eating his kids meals out of the bin yeah you know, wow they, these are wow. the things that he you know he opened up about and it is true that food seems to be filling a gap for a lot of people especially when they're when they're tapering off of certain drugs yeah. as well so if you, have you experienced this as well with food with 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 food i mean yeah 
Um, I mean, there's nothing... I would say mine is tamer than a lot of other people. Um, you know, there's certainly no no bulimic kind of vibe to it. There's no throwing up. There's none of that. But, yeah, if I feel shit, I will eat a load of food. You know, I will I will eat a tub of... Half a tub of ice cream. I'll eat two or three tubs of Pringles. Again, in the great scheme of things, people be going, what? You eat three tubs of Pringles. But I'm not wanting to do it. It is out of my control i will make myself bloated i will make myself feel sick and i will look in the mirror and be disgusted at you know my fat belly as i perceive it you know and i and i'll vow not to do it again and i'll either do it you know an hour later or i'll do it the next day it it is out of my control and it is coming from the same place for me as drugs i'd rather be shoveling food into me than cocaine um Actually, I'd rather be doing neither of those things. I'd rather be in a confident, self-loving place where I don't need to do something to stop me feeling. It's to stop me feeling. I mean, the big one for me was sex, um, you know, porn and, and relationships, you know, sexual encounters outside of a, of a loving relationship and all these kind of things. It's that thing of... Just not being comfortable with who I am, not liking who I am and wanting to drown it out. The food one is a big one though. And I think that I've been in meetings, NA meetings where someone has gone, um, I was in an AA meeting in New York last year, maybe the year last year. And a, a woman, I always feel a bit weird in AA meetings. It's, NA is kind of my place, but I, I go to AA if, if there's nothing else. And a woman said, well, I've, I've been free from sugar for two weeks. And people laughed. People laughed. And I went up to her afterwards and just said, I just want to say thank you for what you shared about the sugar. Um, you know, I, I, I struggle with it, not in the same way as you, but I struggle with food. And uh, it was just, I was just, it was really impressive to hear you've, you've, you've gone two weeks. Well done. Because people laugh about even in meetings, people will laugh about stuff that to them, you know, there are some people that are addicted to wanking, you know, addicted to wanking. And I've heard people laugh about that and you think, but if it's causing them shame and if it's out of their control, then that's the same thing as me shoveling coke up my nose or you, not you, but you know, another person, that's you not being able to stop drinking vodka, you know, or... It's the same thing, man. Yeah. May not kill them, might do, but it's the same thing, and um, that always uh, always has me scratching my head a little bit in meetings. And I think self harm as well. There's, there's, with people that take a blade to their skin, it's yeah. the same principle. With it's self soothing in, in yeah. one way or another. Um, so you still attend uh, regular meetings, do you? Or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he hesitates. Yeah, I, I, I could always do more. I got 13 years clean. Then when I came back from the jungle, uh, after a whole culmination of things, including not going to NA meetings for about 18 months, maybe two years, uh, I picked up drugs again. For you know, I, I put myself in a situation where I knew there was going to be uh, I knew it was going to be crystal meth. I'd never done crystal before. I knew there was going to be crystal. And I thought, if it gets offered to me, I'm going to have a go because I think I'm all right. Of course I wasn't all right. I was fucking insane, man. I was insane. I'd done this, you know, this 
surreal, intense experience in Australia, 10 days in isolation, three weeks, you know, being bullied by, by, by people, um, then coming back to being more famous than I'd ever been in my life. It's worn off now, but I couldn't walk down the street without a dozen, you know, 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds coming up to me asking me for self. It was insane. So that, combined with the fact I hadn't done meetings, combined with the fact I'd been living in a bedsit for a year, and I had to pretend that I was still, my marriage was still successful. All of those things meant I was not very well and my, you know, my resistance was low. And so I put myself in a situation where there was drugs and I did crystal meth for the first time. I'm there, I'm sucking on a pipe. I've never sucked on a pipe in my life. And I'm there and nothing's happening. I'm thinking, fuck man, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. This is shit. And after about half an hour, suddenly, do you know what? I have to be so careful about talking about this because I'm, I'm, I'm getting a buzz if, talking about it. So let me bring it down a little bit because my head's going a little bit wobbly. Basically, I, got, I suddenly got very, very high and voice in my head said, welcome home. Welcome home, son. What have you been doing? And for 20 minutes, it was fucking incredible. 20 minutes, I was so fucking high, man. I was watching porn, thinking, this is it. I'm back. And then for the next 36 hours, it was horrendous. I was trying to capture that first hit again, and I couldn't, couldn't. And it was awful. It was awful. And, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I, I picked up, not even where I left off, I picked up worse than where I left off. And I, I was well enough that when I got home, tried to sleep it off, couldn't. I went that that I told my best friend, phoned up some people in NA that I hadn't spoken to for years and grasped myself up. And that was my pattern for the next three months was acting out, picking up drugs, using drugs, cocaine I went back to. <sighs> Feeling the shame and the guilt, telling my best friend, going to meetings, three months of that before it clicked again, before it clicked and I finally managed to get it finally managed to get recovery and get clean and now I'm 15 months uh, 15 months clean and the, the obsession to use is gone again and I'm lucky it was only three months you know I was lucky it was only three months I'm lucky that I had a job that was important to me I'm lucky that I had a really good friend who um, was important to me and didn't judge me and I'm lucky I got back into the swing of recovery again so yeah I do go to meetings uh, I've got a sponsor who I don't phone often enough. You know, usual, usual. I should go to. I could go to more meetings. I could speak to my sponsor a bit more. But um, uh, while I regret having a three months relapse, I'm also glad I had a three months relapse because it showed me there was there was some lingering doubts. Maybe I wasn't an addict. Maybe I just got. Maybe it just got a bit crazy. I'm a. I'm a fucking addict, man. I've got no control. I've got no control. Once that drug hits me, boom. I'm. I'm gone, I'm out of here. Fuck you, fuck my kids, fuck everyone. Fuck them, you're not important. You've, you've spoken really openly about uh, NA and AA and 12 Steps. Yeah. Um, and this is quite often a discussion we have in, in drug policy reform generally is um, abstinence definitely works for a lot of people. Yeah. doesn't necessarily work for everybody because of various different life situations and hence why we recommend heroin-assisted treatment and which is kind of like a methadone program right. with heroin and things like that. But for you personally, is, is abstinence the way that you've had yeah. to deal with it? Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. I can't have a... I don't see the point in having a beer. Why would you want a beer? You want 12 beers, right? Why would you have a glass of wine? You want three bottles of wine, right? Right? Don't see the point in a beer. Um, I couldn't have a spliff. I couldn't because, you know, when I got that high from that from that crystal, just doors opened in my head and I was back in this kingdom of, let's get fucked. And that would be the same thing with with all of those things and i know people that um i was drop some names i was doing a thing with kelsey grammar oh wow frazier i was hosting a q an evening with kelsey grammar theater and i got to go and have a coffee with him a couple of weeks before of course he's famously talked openly about being a cocaine addict and i was talking about i said to him is there, what, what what can't i talk about what can't i he said you can ask me anything i said can we talk about drugs he said yeah I said, okay, I was talk about it now because I'm, coca- I'm a cocaine addict. I know that you were, but I noticed that you were having a martini. How does that work? And he said, well, the drugs were a problem and I went into rehab and it stopped for a bit and then I came back and I did the drugs and I started, but eventually got clean. I don't know how many years he's clean now. It's quite a while. And he said, and I did AA. And then a few years ago, I thought, uh, I thought, I think I'm okay. And I don't know how many years ago, five, six, seven, eight, something like that. And he drinks now. And he can drink, it would appear, and I, I believe him, he can drink in moderation. You know, he can have a martini. Certainly wasn't drunk the night, but, you know, it, it would appear he has that under control. And for him, that works. For him, that works. And I know people that can have a little smoke now after years of being clean. Beautiful. I'm envious, deeply envious. I'd love a joint. Love it. But I can't do it because I would smoke that eighth in an evening and I'd be trying to score some more. Oh, by the way, if you're coming round and you've got some... You haven't got any... You don't know where I could get some coke. I'm fucked. Yeah. So have you got two different versions of you? The the one that's got the, the addiction head and then there's the you that's got the rational head? Or is it... Does does it all merge into one? It's picture? all kind of mixed up in, in. It's all kind of mixed up in there. It's like when I was talking then about my relapse, I actually started to get a little buzz off it. Um, I could feel my breath getting a little bit shorter because it was exciting me. It was exciting me, and I have to. Uh, I have to be aware of that. Um, it's all a mess. This abstinence works for me. I'm aware it's not for everyone. That's great. I'm aware that. For a long time, I I would get really annoyed when people would say that the 12 steps weren't for them. Fuck you talking about, man. This shit fucking works. This shit fucking works for me, and it works for a lot of people I see, but it's not for everyone. I get that now. I get that it's not for... If you're not coming to a meeting just because of the God line, then I would uh, ask you to reconsider and explain. If I was just talking to someone on Twitter, we were talking about OA, and he said he didn't like it because of the God stuff. And I said, well, you know, the way it was explained to me, maybe they shouldn't write God with a capital G. Maybe it should be a lowercase g. In fact, I think it definitely should be. I know it comes from a Christian principle, but let's make it a lowercase g. Let's even take God out and put higher power. You know, for me, my God is, is sunshine. It's a tree. It's the forest. It's my kids laughing. It's that's is my higher power, is the universe, you know, Mother Nature, whatever you want to call it. And I think that maybe 
a significant number. This is I'm just guessing here. If you, you think differently, dear listener, then then that's great. My opinion is I think maybe some people have come in once, seen the God thing, and never come back. That could actually benefit from it. I think we might have lost a few people in terms of of attendees because of that God thing. Okay, but I get that um, now. The 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 the, the A meetings, the twelve step meetings, they're not for everyone, and there are other ways around it. You know, I know people that got clean through through Jesus Christ, you know, through religion. Beautiful. If that works for you, man, I'm never going to knock you for doing it. I'm never going to knock you for doing it. Um, there are people that have just stopped through their own sheer will. There are people that, you know, go to group therapy or go to treatment centers that aren't 12-step based. There are people that can cut back. If that works for you, uh, then that's fantastic. I think definitely the approach has to be as nuanced as the individual. Because, yeah. You know, we know people that have turned to extreme sports and, and that's gotten through, oh, and which, which again, yeah. you know, it's got its own issues with adrenaline rush. I, and, I could never do I saw so many people when I started getting clean that were losing weight and going to the gym. Yeah. I never got that. I really tried to get addicted to that and I couldn't do it. It didn't work for me. You know, exercise doesn't work for me as a thing, but some people, uh, they can. And, and, you know, maybe you have to question you talk about extreme sports and pushing yourself physically to the limit is you know how healthy is that well it's healthier than putting a needle in your arm you know so there's kind of ups and downs of all it but whatever works for you is good um you know i used to be quite not a i used to be quite adamant that the the 12 steps were the only way to go and it's still when people come to me on the show it's still kind of my first suggestion to them because it is what worked for me and I, I can only really suggest I can honestly suggest the stuff that's worked for me but I get that it's not so for everyone can I ask at what point did you think actually I might need to make some changes now I was doing a TV show 15 years ago called Rise that was like the big breakfast but not not as good uh, yeah and it was a great show I loved it and Suddenly, I was earning more money than I'd ever earned in my life. And someone had given me the number of a dealer that would come round on a scooter. And I was, uh, I don't remember what the point was. I was in a lot of pain. I mean, my drug use before then had been big, been big. And um, that's when I, but that was that year when I thought, I need to cut down. I need to cut down. I mean, I was doing a lot of drugs. I've sounded, it sounds like I'm bragging. I'm not. I'm just being honest. I don't remember a point. I remember a point when I told my girlfriend at the time that I had a drug problem. And that was only because she caught me. I'd been late coming back because I was just in my car using. Jeez, glamorous. I was all these messages. Where are you? You were supposed to be home four hours ago. Fuck. And I was high as a kite. And I went back and said, I think I've got a drug problem. I only said it to get her off my back, to buy more time, you know, to, so that I, it would explain me using. Um, and she had a friend who was an alcoholic, and so she kind of put me in, he said, you've got, to, you've got to stop this, you've got to phone up NA. And I phoned up NA to, you know, to show that I was doing something, but I had no intention of stopping. But that was, I mean, I knew before then I was, I was fucked. You know, you know when you've got the house to yourself for four days and you've just done coke, you know, the second your partner's gone out and you're just doing drugs and watching watching porn, you know, by day two, day three of that, 
you think, fuck, is this, um, is this, am I living? Is this living? Is this, am I really? I used to think I was like a brave crusader. I used to think I was like a soldier pushing back the, the boundaries. Is the thoughts I'm pushing back the boundaries and frontiers of decadent hedonism and stuff. No, man, I was an idiot in a room with curtains nailed up to the window watching porn for three days in a row. Say it out loud. It doesn't sound very glamorous. I don't know when I realised, but that's that, that's when I started going to NA, and it took 18, 16 months of going before I realised I couldn't cut down. I couldn't do it. I had to stop, and I had, I had to stop everything. And um, yeah, so it was September. 2014 I guess it was 2013 or 2014 September the 27th was my last my last use up and it was you know it was awful it was awful it was horrendous and then I got clean and then I went you know really took the meeting seriously and uh I do it all slowly I didn't get a sponsor for ages then I didn't start doing the steps for ages and you know but that's that's my journey a lot of people just take the mickey out of the the entertainment industry because it's like oh you know prima donna's using drugs you know poor them but you can totally see why not necessarily the traps are there but certainly the roots of why these issues start to creep in i think a lot of people in the entertainment industry have got very low self-esteem anyway it's it's fragile isn't it it's it's very fragile there's a lot of low self-esteem there is a lot of it um, I don't know so much now because I've not really been in TV for a while, but there is, there was in the early 2000s, you know, you could say to someone discreetly, do you know, don't worry, I can get any Coke, dear. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, go, I'll get, get you some for tonight. There was a lot of that going on. Um, you, you know, for me, suddenly I had money when I've been signing on. Um, but then I think it's the same in any industry. I see a lot of black cabbies in. NA meetings, you know, I don't know why that is. I see a lot of it's it's everywhere. This is the thing, you know, I've been in meetings and I've been sat next to one of the biggest rock stars in the world. And on the other side, I've had a homeless guy, literally. It's literally been that. And it, it, it can, that's the humbling thing is that it can affect anybody. It can affect anybody. Is it more prevalent in show business? I don't know if it is, actually. I, I just think maybe we hear about it more than you hear about you know you hear more about pop stars that are cokeheads than you do window cleaners because it's it was more interesting story apparently i don't personally think it is at all or we could use politicians as an example at the moment politicians yeah you know it's kind of it's everywhere it's everywhere you know so i don't know if it's if it affects showbiz show business people more i don't know it's it's Going to kind of goes with the hospitality aspect of, of of the industry. Again, I've I've got no um, knowledge of the industry. You know, I've always been very stepped back from it. But it it seems like from a, the small amount I've seen through that little gap in the curtain, it does seem like as you said, there's a lot of fragile egos. Mm. If if you need to be out there and, and face being present, and when you're not, and you're not getting that attention all of a sudden it must be difficult to kind of get your head around that. I don't know. I mean, that is, that is the thing. I don't, I, I don't know if I buy that thing, you know, you hear, you hear people saying, well, you know, rock stars or comedians, they do a tour for 25 nights and they, every night they're met by 2,000, 5,000, 20,000 fans and then they come off and how do you keep that high up? I don't know if I actually buy that 
so much. Maybe it's true in some cases. I mean, there is a lot of boredom. You know, it's something to do. But uh, it, for me, it was just because I felt like a piece of shit. I felt less than and I felt bitter a lot of bitterness you know we talk about the 11 o'clock show and how it set a lot of people off on careers I was so jealous of Ricky Gervais and Sasha Baron Cohen and Mackenzie Crook as well who I used to live with I was jealous because after the 11 o'clock show I had a couple of things but not much and suddenly Gervais and Sasha are in America making movies and I'm thinking well that was supposed to be my career because you were the anchor, weren't you? You were the kind of was, the main face. He of said anchor, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was always my career, was to do a t- couple of TV shows in Britain, then go into America and make movies. That was the p- dream I'd always had. Suddenly these two are doing it. Mackenzie's getting his own series. Now, of course, what I can see now is that Gervais and Sasha, Mackenzie to a certain extent, actually, he's, he's shown in the past few years, but those two were very rare talents you know they happened to have been at one point i don't know so much now but they happened to have been two of the funniest people in the world who just so happened were on the same show that i was on what are the chances of that very slim but you know whatever you think of them now they were two of the funniest people that's why they went to they're also very determined and very focused and very clean but that's why they ended up in hollywood making movies being multi-millionaires but for a long time i'm sat at home watching these fuckers on my telly fucking going off and having my career. The fucking, you know, and I'm sat there, of course it's not going to happen to me, I'm sat there snorting coke and just just railing against how unfair the universe is. Instead of looking at the wonderful things I've been given, I'm getting, I'm consumed with bitterness and jealousy and resentment. That's gone now, pretty much. There's still twinges of resentment and twinges of, jealousy not so much bitterness jealousy and resentment twinges of it um but for a long time it was it was consuming it was it was really consuming and uh god i was angry did you notice a pattern in and by i don't want to pry too much but did you notice a pattern in when you were happy or when you was in the state you've just explained was there more of a substance use within those two paradigms um, I don't really remember being happy in that whole period. I don't, you know, I don't really remember happiness. There was a lot of fear. Uh, there was a lot, it was fear and resentment and and um, it was dark, man. It was a dark, you know, the 11 o'clock show started in 1998, September 98. And when did I say I got clean? 2004. 2004 I think it's 2014 2004 um and I've been using drugs before then but that was kind of the key period um there wasn't much joy in there there was a lot of fear there was a lot of sadness a lot of loneliness a lot of guilt and shame um and the 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 constant was the drugs I guess kept getting more and more and more and, 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 you know, pushing me well outside of my moral boundaries. It's that thing, you know, I'm never going to, never going to do that. Never going to cross that line. And you find yourself crossing that line quite easily and go, right. Okay. Fuck. Well, I'm never going to do this next line. And you just keep crossing those lines of what I thought my, I was living a life where morals and my morals and my ethics were gone and destroyed and didn't mean anything 
to me. You know, it was it was uh, it was dark, man. That is the nature of tolerance building. Isn't it it yeah. doesn't matter what the substance is. It yeah. just matters how you're prepared to go for the next kind of level up. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you found any, both publicly and personally, what has been your dealings with stigma? Stigma around... Drug addiction. Yeah, your, your openness in the way that you're willing to talk about it and the fact that you, you are out there saying, look, you know, I've been through this. How, how has that affected you? How has it affected me? I was embarrassed when it got in the papers. Didn't get in the papers until after the jungle and suddenly for, for about a year I was deemed as newsworthy. And stuff, and I talked about being an addict on my radio show before. But as soon as I talked about it after the jungle, it was printed in the newspapers. What the fuck? Which meant that people, you know, let me tread very carefully around this, that certain relatives of mine who'd been unaware of that because they never listened to my radio show, suddenly it was in the papers. And I had a couple of really awkward conversations with people going, oh, I didn't know you were an addict. Can we chat about this? And I would say, and you know, there's only a couple of people, and they were actually very good about it. Um, uh, and I would explain that I've been clean for this amount of time, and this is what I do to maintain my recovery. And but it was awkward. So I had to, to a couple of people, a couple of elderly people, I had to explain the situation. Uh, I'd always been used to controlling the information. I say on my radio show, it's a small cult listenership. That's as far as it would go. But suddenly, I would say on the radio show, shit, it's on page seven of the Sun. You know, God, right, okay. Um, so there was that stigma. Not really. Not really. Um, not really. And I decide what I reveal and to whom. Here I'm very happy to talk about anything, pretty much. Um, 
on my radio show, if I feel up to it, I'll talk about anything. But it's not public property. My mental health, your physical condition, anybody, you know, any, anybody's story is theirs, right? And they are the only ones that decide when they talk about it and what they say about it. And this whole fascination we've got in the press, on TV, in the, in the papers, you know, the fucking... They don't do it so much now. But you remember those pictures of Gaza, Paul Gascoigne? Paul Gascoigne spotted buying another bottle of vodka. The fuck do I want to see that for? Why do I want to see a man at his lowest ebb killing himself? I don't want to see that. And how do you think printing that picture is going to help him? How do you think humiliating a man who it would appear is humiliated enough, how is that going to help? It doesn't help. And, um, you know, the, the, the Mirror printed a story, but I think they printed the story about me getting divorced and they phoned up my agent to say, we're running this story tomorrow. Um, would Ian like to do an interview for it? And uh, he told them to fuck off. And they phoned back again and said, we can, you know, we, we will let Ian say whatever he wants and we'll make it part of our mental health campaign week. And I said, you, fuck, you fucking bastards. How dare you do this as though you're helping me? I don't want the story in the paper that I'm getting divorced. You're going to pr- if you want to help mental health, don't print it. Don't print it. Cuz how does that help me? How does that help my ex-wife? How does that help my kids? How does that help her mum and dad? How do- how does that fucking help? And this whole cop so I'm getting so angry. I'll stop in a minute. This whole culture that the press has that we have a right to know everything about everybody. Final example. Katie Price is obviously having a really tough time at the moment. Um, I, I suspect that, you know, from what I have seen, it looks like there might be, might be some kind of addiction issues. There's probably some mental health issues going on. There's certainly some financial issues going on. So how does printing it in the paper every single day, how does that help that poor woman? I know that she's made her living by being in the paper, but give her a, give her a break. Let her have some privacy. Let her sort out her life. Let her feed her kids. Leave her alone. Hate it. Hate it. Sorry. That's my no, there's, there's so many points you hit on there that I just could not agree with you more on. The fact that, as you said, we, we use drugs as a folk devil. Gascoigne being a perfect example. Yeah. We have. We've witnessed what, you know, and I use this in quotation marks, his demise. Mm. And it's it's hideous. What, like you said, why do we need to witness that? Is it there as a deterrent for some other people? No, it's not. It's, it's, as, it's salacious headlines just so that we got something to kind of go oh look look at this person do we feel superior to them you know what is it that makes us they want a picture of him dead that's it they want a picture of him dead because because then they can go oh we lost a hero no you fucking you hounded him you hound addicts all this mental health stuff you hound suicidal people you hound uh, people that have had nervous breakdowns you hound them leave them alone it's not even interesting to read it's not interesting. I think the public wants and deserves more than than is. Here's an old rock star who's off, fallen off the wagon, and they're pissed. Have some respect, man. And and also, you you touched upon something there that I don't think we've ever really touched upon in this podcast, and it's so crucial. Is that as you said, someone's story is, is theirs. Yeah. It's for for them to come out with as and when they feel ready, which is why I always feel quite coy and, and a sense of responsibility on this podcast because we're dealing with the most tricky themes possible mm. um, adult themes yeah described <laughs> we, have, we, we have the we have the little e on 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 <laughs> itunes like explicit <laughs> but you're right that i feel because when, when, we, when we've been discussing this in emails i'm like look 
whatever time works for you. Yeah. You know, I'm not here to push you. So, you know, I'm just grateful that there's someone coming forward and putting these points across because to us, that's what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to make sure that people aren't stigmatised, criminalised because of addiction. So when you've got someone like you that is willing to make these points, mm. I'm very conscious of however far you want to go. I'm, and I always say, look, I'm not Paxman. I'm not pushing for this. So when you when you bring that point up that, look, this is someone's story. This mm. is their life. Don't just use that as the next headline. Do you reckon we're ever going to get away from that? With the conversations we're having at the moment with mental health and the, just how affected we all are and how destigmatized it needs to be, is that going to trickle to the press? No. No. Because it sells. You know, we, we've... Here's the thing. You, you have been... We've, you know, you've been very generous in your email saying you don't have to answer anything you want. And before you started recording, you said you don't have to answer anything you want. And I can press that stop button if we get to something I don't want, you know. So, but, but, but coming here, I am acknowledging that we are going to be talking about drugs and about mental health. So there is kind of an acceptance between the two of us that, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. There might be some stuff I hold back off, but I'm, that's the basic premise of, of, of the conversation. You know, it, it, the press and this Matthew Wright thing, that, that the premise was not, that, you know, they were specifically not going to talk about those things. Will it ever change? No, because it sells, because the people that do these, these, my radio show, right, we call it The Late Night Alternative. It's me and my friend Catherine, and we don't talk about Brexit, and we don't talk about Trump, and we don't talk about um, celebrities that um, are suffering from addiction. We don't, we, we, we don't do it, right? We don't get very many listeners on my show. You know, we don't get very, we get, we, we get quite a small audience. But the shows that talk about Brexit and Trump and, you know, celebrities falling off the wagon, they get huge figures. They get huge figures. Um, we've had these suicides, you know, the, the, the gentleman from Love Island, and there was a woman, I think, from Love Island a couple of years ago, and the Jeremy Kyle guy, and apologies, I can't remember any of their names, so I, hope, I don't mean any disrespect. Um, but we've had suicides from people having their lives invaded. When, when I did the jungle, right, by the way, the psych tests to get in and out of the jungle, forget it. Because I know what to say to a psychiatrist to get my way. My, my psych test was done on the phone and I knew exactly, have you felt suicidal recently? No. Yeah, I have. Yeah. But I'm going to say No. Um, have you fantasized about taking drugs recently? No. You say all that and I got in the jungle. Um, and I went nuts coming out of the jungle and I'd had a little bit of TV exposure. I kind of knew what to expect. It was actually, it was much bigger than I expected, but I kind of knew and I went nuts. And these poor kids that go on Love Island have got no idea what to expect. They've got no idea of the intrusion they are opening, seemingly opening the doors to. And also... I knew this would happen. It lasted longer than I thought, actually. I had about eight or nine months of fame, fame in inverted commas, after the jungle, and then it stopped. Then it stopped. Don't get any more work because of it. Hardly get recognised in the streets. Stopped. And it was a little bit of a, a shock. Even though I knew it was coming, it was a bit of a shock. But these Love Island kids, and I'm, I'm being slightly patronising, I don't mean to, but these, these people on Love Island... They don't know that. They think that their life is, for, I, I, I imagine, their life is forever going to be, you know, Instagram and fame and money. Once you've had that check from that show, that's it. 
might get a few more quid from doing PAs and things like that. But but that that's that money. And you've got to pay half of that in tax as well. So you're not as rich as you think you are. And for most of them, six months after, that fame is gone. And that's a big thing to accept when you're 22, 23 years old, that that, that fun thing where you're being papped everywhere you go and you're on red carpets, that comes, uh, that comes to an end. So it, it doesn't surprise me that that young lad killed himself, you know, took his own life. And, you know, the papers go, oh, this is a real tragedy and this is really sad and ITV really need to buck up their ideas when it comes to Love Island but you look at the papers today it's all going to be you know the women and men in Love Island in not many clothes and the latest oh such and such fancy such and such but they were cheating with such they're playing the same game they're playing the same game so is it ever going to change I don't think so I don't think so unfortunately that's a, that's a really good point I think about fame because I've always that, that you know don't for one second think I'm famous but the the small glimpses that I've had mm. of that world you know I've, I've had films out that have done well and mm. things like that and you get to see people that clearly love that environment yeah you know, it's it, addictive you're, you're hanging out with people that are off the telly off the off the movie screens and then all of a sudden as you said it stops mm. it, it doesn't necessarily go the way you think it does if, if you were to put fame in the same category as drugs would you say that it is addictive very and, addictive very addictive. I, my first brush with fame, and I'm doing it in inverted commas with a very small F, with the 11 o'clock show, it scared the shit out of me. And I partly used drugs as an excuse to not really get involved. I didn't, I didn't go to many showbiz parties, if any. Didn't go to any red carpet events. I would just stay at home and get high. Um, but being recognised in the street, you know, is kind of nice. It's, you know, be feeling important doing in the run-up to the jungle and for a brief period after the jungle i felt really important the run-up to the jungle with the, the the production team you are treated like a celebrity they treat you like royalty right and it's you've all got code names and it's all very mysterious and it's all quite intriguing and you're treated like a star and you go and meet kevin ligo the head of itv and you go you get taken out for expensive lunches and all of this and you get you kind of buy into this shit and then coming out um, you know, I had all these meetings with TV people who were saying, we're going to get you back on TV. We've got a great project for you. We've got a documentary idea, got a game show idea for all of this stuff. Of course, it came to nothing, but it's all very flattering. And and then it stops and you kind of come crushing down, crashing down. I expected to come crashing down this time. I kind of knew it was going to happen. But for these younger people, and the turnover is quicker now than it was 20 years ago, I don't think they do. And what do you do you know, you're 22, you've been on Love Island or you've been on Big Brother. I mean, not quite such an impact these days, but you've been on those programs and you have been made to feel important by the crew, by the fans of the show. And then it and then it goes. It is like a drug. So, so you will, some people will do anything to keep chasing that high. And some people will, will debase themselves. You know, we talked about boundaries around drugs they'll debase themselves to keep getting in the papers. Not all of them, not all of them. You know, I, I, I don't want to generalise too much, but there are some of them that will. Yes, it is very addictive to be, uh, you know, sat next to Brad Pitt at a premiere of a film. It's, a, it's nice, it's a nice feeling. You feel flattered, you feel attractive, you feel important, you feel sexy, but it's not, it's not real. It's not real. And that, that is so true. The people that you sit next to in these events, you know, like I... 
my, my parents use me as a name drop for the various people that I've met right. because it makes, you know, in their conversations yeah. that they have with people, it feels, oh, look, he's doing this now. He's met this person. Yeah, yeah. And I've always said that, you know, fame, you can see how the trappings yeah. get you into these places of, of mental health difficulties and, and substance use. And also being famous doesn't mean you're rich. Yes, that is so true. I, yeah. I mean, I got quite a bit of money for the jungle, right? I didn't get as money as you, much money as you probably think it is. I certainly got the lowest out of, you know, I was gutted when I found out I got the least out of everybody on there. Um, and my boy said, they should pay you more because you came third. I'm like, yeah, they should have done. I got paid a lot of money, right? But half of that goes on tax. 15% goes to, to uh, my agent. Um, and then the rest was part of a deposit to a house. It's gone. It went, you know, straight away. I got no idea what they get on Love Island, but, they're not they're not rich people think because you're on telly because you're at a red carpet event you must be rich but i was you know i came back from the jungle and i went back to my one room bed sit in slough that i'd been that i'd been living in for 18 months that didn't um you know that was an absolute shithole that i was scared to park my car there because there were these gangs of kids that were sat outside with knives who would fight and stuff that's what I went back to. That's the reality of the physical place I went back to. And people would have thought that I was loaded and living in a mansion. It wouldn't work like that. I can't believe I've got to wrap up with you now because we've been going Shut through up, it. Man. We're, just, we're just warming up. I know. This, this is, is the, the thing. When you get someone like you that's just so eloquent that and fluent on shut it. shut up. <laughs> so, <laughs> what you mean? <laughs> I need to keep it going. But I'm going to put you on the spot now. So Yes. So, What's my favourite drug? It was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said you like LSD. You said that. LSD uh, was the most fun. And it feels funny saying that. Um, it feels funny saying that because it feels like in some way I'm condoning. Here's the thing as well. We talk about drugs on the radio show a bit. And I have to, by the rules of Ofcom, I have to say, of course, you know, don't, don't do drugs. But as if some 16-year-old, 25-year-old, 50-year-old listening to me at home with a, you know, gram of Coke or a spliff or some hair, whatever... It's going to go, fuck. No, oh, that guy on the radio said they're going to do it. What I want to say is, you know, if you're going to do drugs, as long as, as, long as you're having fun and you're having a good time, yeah, play safe, man. Play safe. I'm an old man. The best advice I can give you is play safe. But I'm not allowed to do that because it then sounds like I'm saying to the listeners, go and do drugs. Here's the thing. People will always do drugs. There is a very strong chance my kids, they're seven and nine, at some point will do drugs. It's a very, very strong chance. Um, so this is why I think what you're doing is important and what a, f what a few other people are doing is important, and it is a few, is acknowledging the reality that for a lot of people, drugs are part of their lives, whether it is addiction and they can't stop or whether it's just a bit of fun every other weekend. Whatever it is, drugs are a reality for people. And drugs, can there's a reason ecstasy is called ecstasy. You know, there's a reason it's got that name. Um... I don't know what the point is I'm trying to make. The, try, the point I'm trying to make is that people take drugs and whatever I say isn't going to stop anybody. Um, if you're doing it, be safe, have fun. There was a big story a couple of months ago, and we did it on the show about one of the universities, maybe it was Brighton, I'm not sure, gave out advice to new students saying, if you're going to do heroin, have someone with you. And of course, the Daily Mail and the paper, this is outrageous. This is disgusting. How do... And, Actually, it's a really, really good suggestion. If you're going to do heroin, 
make sure there's someone with you who can keep an eye on you in case it does turn sour. You know, make that is that is that is sensible advice. Instead of saying don't do heroin, right? Just if you're gonna do it, here are some things that make what can potentially be quite a dangerous pastime a bit safer. Right? I'd rather you didn't do it, but if you're going to do it, I certainly don't want you to die. Here's some things that you might want to take into account. Seems perfectly sensible to me. You've kind of inadvertently answered the question I was going to oh. ask, which was if you were prime minister and you were setting out legislation, yeah. um, and as we've seen in recent times, you've perfectly qualified to do it with, yeah. with everything that's gone on with Michael Gove and everything. But you've, you've set out perfectly because yeah. what we call what you've just described there is harm reduction. So if you are... We know that laws don't deter use. We've no. got all of that on evidence and on record. So if you are to use drugs, this is how to do it safely. Like you said, maybe best you don't, but if you are, yeah. here's the way to do it. And is without getting too personal, and again, you tell me to shut up if you want, yeah. but if you mention your children, if you are to educate them, what is your message towards, it doesn't have to be just your children, but anybody, what would you say? Stay off the brown, keep on the white. I don't know, what <laughs> would my message be? I would really hope... My kids are aware of alcoholism. This is why it's good to talk about this in public, because of Ant from Ant and Deck. Because, because they were aware of them. They don't watch much sort of telly, but they were aware of Ant and Deck through the jungle. And I can't remember what the conversation was, but they were talking to me about him. And they said, they, they call getting drunk the drunk for some reason. And they said, um, is it true that Ant can't stop getting the drunk? And I said, oh, how did you, where did you hear about that? I think a friend had mentioned it at school, and I said, "Yeah, that is true. He has um, he has a, he has a, a, an illness." I said, "Do you know what the illness is called?" They said, "Yeah, he's an alcoholic." I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And I said, I'll "Tell you what that means. It means that some people, like your granddad, can have a drink, two drinks, three drinks, and then they can stop. And then there are some people, like Anne, who once they have one drink in them, they can't stop." And I said, "It's not a weakness. Don't be ashamed. It's just an illness. He's got an illness. He's got a disease, right?" And there are ways that he can get better. He needs, you know, he needs to go and speak to his doctor and maybe speak to some friends. And there are ways to get better from it, which means he will, he will probably choose to stop drinking forever. We kind of had this, you know, this pre pretty cool chat. They've, they know that I don't drink and they've not asked me about it yet. And I'm not going to tell them yet, but um, they know that I don't drink. And if they do bring it up, I'll say, yeah. This is, this is where I'll talk about being an alcoholic. I won't talk about drugs at this stage necessarily. Um, but I, when they are old enough, I will tell them, you know, a brief version of my history. And I will talk to them about drugs in the hope that if they ever want to take drugs, they'll come and, you know, maybe I'm sounding like, hey, I'm a cool dad. Come and sit with me and I'll roll you a spliff and we'll listen. let me put some Hendrix on and let me tell you some tales. No, I hope they will, will trust me enough to know that they can come to me and talk about anything and ask anything and I will give them my honest experience, my honest opinion on it. And then it's up to them to make their own decisions. And as a dad, fuck me, that's hard to say. That is so hard to say. I don't want my kids anywhere near drugs. I don't want my kids taking ecstasy or smoking. I don't want that. It's not my decision. It's their decision. And I have to trust. I have to give them as much information as I can. And then they make the decision that they want to make. You know, it's tough as a dad to say that. You want to protect your babies. And even when they're 20, they'll be my babies. Um, 
I think that's the perfect point to end on. Oh, you that, want me to shut up? That, I get it. Right. <laughs> that is genuinely the perfect point to end nice on. Nice one. Thank you. I think that is the overriding message is provide people with the information so they can make their own choices. Yeah. And not in those, you know, those groovy government ads. Hey, talk, talk, to, our, talk to Frank. You know, I know Frank was a great thing. And it was a great thing. But it just felt very, you know, you'd be at home smoking a spliff laughing at those adverts. I think it's really important for parents and schools parents primarily to uh to talk honestly and openly about any drug experience that they have had age appropriate of course and be able to to be approached by the kids and not be shocked it's that thing a kid brings in a pill and you go what the fuck that is you know you, you've got to be able to have an honest open conversation like you're doing with this podcast i'm ian lee i'm shutting up now thank you very much thank you so much for Thanks, joining man. us i appreciate your time well I think you'd agree that was pretty damn powerful. It really helps having someone like Ian in his profile speak about the journey he's been through. It just, it really just does a lot of good. So thank you so much, Ian. And I have to do some thank yous as well to all of our team that, that produce this. It's not just me. There's a big team. That's Tristan and Nikki, the producers. John Cross, the producer as well. And John Harris that does all of our little social media little bits. Uh, thank you also to Scribus Pittman, all the Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the artwork. And just thank you for listening. Let's keep this conversation going. We need to destigmatize addiction and mental health. Thank you so much. Bye. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.